Hi, and welcome to Compassion in a T-Shirt. My name's Dr. Stan Steindl, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nadine Levy. Nadine is Head of Programme for the Health and Social Wellbeing Programme at the Nan Tien Institute. Academically, Nadine's background is in law and gender studies and her PhD is in sociology, and she's also a committed Buddhist and is interested in the way that Buddhism and sociology can enliven one another. I met Nadine at the recent UQ Compassion Symposium, and I was very keen to get to talk to her and hear about her life-spanning experience of Buddhism, mindfulness, and compassion and helping to cultivate compassion in others. So I bring you Dr. Nadine Levy. Actually get started. Um, so welcome to Compassion in a T-shirt. Um, although I'm not wearing a T-shirt today, I must admit, I'm I, I, uh, wearing a linen shirt in, instead. Might have to be... Um, compassion in a linen shirt from now on not sure but um anyway yes it was it's great to to have you come on um and uh, as we were saying before it was it, we we sort of i'm not sure if we met very much but we said hello at the recent uq compassion symposium and and your presentation there but i i wondered perhaps um yeah whether we could begin with um just hearing a bit about yourself or your work or maybe your background as well where, where you're where you're coming from sure yes um well uh i am someone who uh started my journey really um towards compassion through buddhism or buddhist practice um and i came to buddhism really early in life actually when i was a teenager um mm. and then um drifted away from it and studied law of all things Mm. practiced in the legal profession for a little while and then decided that I wanted to go back and study sociology which I did um, which led to a PhD on spiritual communities and healing spaces um, which was a real delight to be to be part of um, and during that time was more and more involved in Buddhist practice um, and in particular um, I uh, had a lot to do with the insight tradition, um, in particular the work of Jack Cornfield um, and Joseph Goldstein. And then I also started practicing in the Zen tradition too, and very inspired by Joan Halifax um, and a few other key Buddhist thinkers who have done a, a lot of work on compassion. And so I had the privilege of being in America for a little while and um, practicing with those teachers um, and getting more and more involved. Um, and um, from there, I, uh, I was working at Adelaide Uni for some time as an academic in sociology um, and policy um, and very interested in this concept of an ethic of care, um, which is something that came up in my studies quite a bit. And so um, this notion of like caring as a kind of policy approach was something that I was um, looking into more and more um, and how to bring I suppose, um, justice and compassion together in certain spaces because sometimes they seem at odds. Um, so very interested in that side of things and got to teach a little bit in criminology and restorative justice. And that was a really fertile space um, for these types of discussions. Um, and then after that, 
I decided that I wanted to um, flee the nest because I'd been in Adelaide since I was very little um, and had done my undergraduate honours and PhD and then worked at the same institution. Um, and so at that point, I decided that I was interested in um, venturing further afield. And it was kind of this strange um, synchronistic thing that happened, which was that I went to the Sakyadita conference, which is the Buddhist um, women's conference in the Blue Mountains, um, which had thousands of participants. And it was a really like special experience for me. That was in 2019. Um, and at that point, I was looking for work outside of Adelaide. And this um, institute came up on my algorithms and I had no exposure to the Nanjing Institute at that point. Um, and I didn't even know they existed. And so um, I applied for this job, firstly, not quite knowing who and what they were. And then I went and visited and realized that it's the biggest um, Buddhist temple in the Southern hemisphere uh, in the middle of industrial Wollongong. So quite an interesting spot. Um, and interesting history, um, Chinese Buddhist um, kind of history, and then an institute attached to it, which is a higher ed institute where I got the job and um, I've been there for four years. So the, that's kind of my background. Yeah. yeah. Wow. What a many and varied kind of path, but also with these little little touch points along the way that kind of feel almost like, you know, creating that, that direction and, and trajectory that you're on. Would would you mind if I ask about you as a teenager? One of the things I've been sort of interested about is is working with young people and and exploring sort of um, compassion and maybe even compassion based interventions. I, I'm sort of a a clinician, I suppose, and have the you know sort of run compassion based, uh, especially compassion focused therapy groups and so on but sort of interested in how one might um, pique the interest of young people or teenagers and so on. I was just curious, what what was that for you in terms of your interest in Buddhism as a, as a teen? Yeah, I think that happened at the same time as my awakening or interest in social justice. Um, and so mm. I can remember being quite young, maybe 13 or so, um, and reading about socialism for the first time. Um, and at that point, I went to a local Amnesty International office with a friend and um, asked if there was any kind of volunteering opportunities. And so, um, and that was a really important moment for me because I think, you know, it dawned on me that um, not everyone experienced equality and there were many people in the world who um, just by chance ended up in countries where, you know, human rights and protections were not afforded to them and I, I don't think I'd seen that till I was about 13 um, and so it had this really kind of emotional impact on me um, and I remember a friend of mine and myself withdrawing all the money we had from our bank which was something like a hundred dollars and going to Oxfam and handing it over and so it was this real sense of wow all of a sudden I can see beyond myself um, and I can see the world around me and you know why am I entitled to this privilege and wealth and um, experience so there was that going on for me at the same time and then I think I came to Buddhism maybe partly through um, the kind of archetype of compassion but um, also I was I was in Singapore at the time traveling with my mum who um, actually works in retail and was very keen on shopping 
Um, and I think in response to that, I was kind of anti-consumerist in a way. Um, and um, I was reading, I was in the hotel room and I was reading the Bible, which was on one side of the bed. And then I read the Dhammapada, which was on the other side of the bed, because you know how hotel rooms offer these religious texts, apparently. Um, mm. And when I read the Dhammapada, what, what struck me was it just made perfect sense. And there's this real theme in there of nonviolence and um, uh, avoiding um, uh, addressing hate through hate, etc. And so from there, I remember going to a temple in Singapore where there was an image of Kuan Yin um, or Avalokiteshvara, which is like a female embodiment of compassion. Um, and I witnessed these women at the bottom of the temple making food for the disadvantaged. And I remember feeling really moved by that. Um, and, you know, and sometimes that essence doesn't get translated into Western mindfulness. Um, and mm. what we see is something a little bit more clinical um, and a little bit more modern. Um, but I remember it was that kind of emotional reaction to caring and witnessing compassion in action that, that really propelled me forward as a teenager. At quite a, a, a youngish age, really, 13, you, you sort of had this awakening and it, and it was sort of an awakening to the suffering in the world, which is, you know, kind of um, profound, really, isn't it? But also moved you and, and moved you towards wanting to help even in what ways you could I guess as a 13 year old giving your hundred dollars and that sort of thing like you not not only were you did you awaken to the, the suffering in the world but you felt also moved to you know sort of act take action and and get involved and and um sort of it's it's really you know incredible in some ways perhaps to think of that much younger you being you know so so moved to, to towards really what is kind of compassion um later it became sort of this connection with that and buddhism became sort of clear to you as well and and um the spiritual side um and what sounds like a very moving practical tangible example of what it is to act with compassion um, yeah and it wasn't inspiring. selfless like I did you know I, I absolutely got something back from it in a sense um, mm. and I developed community through being around others at amnesty and through going to Buddhist centers um, and and meaning I think in a sense of being part of humanity in that broader broader sense so mm. um, it wasn't yeah I mean a lot of people think of compassion as self-sacrifice but it certainly didn't feel like self-sacrifice it felt like self-enrichment actually at that point mm. yeah so you know compassion is good for us <laughs> on on a few fronts I mean obviously it's good to help others and, and especially those perhaps who are disadvantaged or, or, you know, but also it, it can be good for the person who, who is being compassionate and, and it kind of has, has that twofold benefit. Is, is it Matthew Ricard or something? I think is who I heard saying something like that, that compassion has a twofold benefit. It doesn't have to be all about sacrifice in a way. And that social connection perhaps was a, was a big part of one of the things that you, you got back. And what about the trip then to the States? Like those people that you mentioned, I mean, they're, they're some of the very important teachers, I think, that certainly people that I'm, I know of as well and have, I think in, in some ways I, I've 
mainly engaged with them on things like Insight Timer or, you know, watched their YouTube, um, yeah, watched them on YouTube and that sort of thing. But, but yes, you, you sound like you had some, some direct sort of um, learnings from all of them. Yeah, I am. Um... I was very into sitting retreats before having kids um, mm. and I sat long retreats actually at Jack's Centre in Spirit Rock for a month and then um, a few retreats with him in Joshua Tree um, and then going to Upaya um, where Joan Halifax is in, in Santa Fe and actually she um, was keen to, to be involved in my PhD study so I was partly there for that but also I sat with her um, and uh, I was really moved actually by, by all these, these people because they are real. They're real and they're um, very authentic. And I think maybe there's something about, you know, American Buddhism um, that means that they're, they're not kind of, it doesn't, it never felt like they were floating above the masses or anything, very personable, very real, very down to earth. And also seeing the benefits of, of practice over long periods of time, which I could really sense. Um, mm. Yeah, so I was at Spirit Rock. I was at San Francisco Zen Center for some time. And um, and then I was at Upaya and I loved it. And, you know, if I had um, the opportunity to do, to do it again, I'd absolutely do it, um, which mm. was actually a point that I was wanting to make earlier, which was mm. um, the importance of traveling with children um, because I think a lot of that awakening that I had when I was a teenager, came from seeing different countries and um, uh, experiencing things outside of my own culture. And so I often think about, you know, taking my um, kids to back to, you know, places like America and India and all those places that have spiritual significance to me. Mm. Um, and I hope to do that. But, yeah, mm. different phase of life at the moment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it actually what you said before about the genuineness or authenticity of, of those people. It, it is funny because from a distance, you know, I notice feeling a little bit of the celebrity of them or something. And and um, and that's probably a, a bit of a shame because I, I suspect they don't really relate to that themselves they they probably don't see themselves in that celebrity light even though uh they're kind of famous in a in a way and and it would be actually really special to to spend some proper time i guess with them and getting to know them as actual people yeah yeah i think that's one of the strange things about american buddhism um i mean pre-modern Buddhism involved a temple down the road where you'd kind of you'd wander over and speak to the teacher one-on-one -on -one and there'd be a lot of opportunity for mentoring but you didn't have exposure to all these different traditions um, and you know this global world which means the internet supports yeah. information spreading um, that that has resulted in these kind of celebrity Buddhist teachers or celebrity spiritual teachers um, which mm. feel very much at a distance and I think that's really lonely and difficult for a lot of teachers, actually. Like I, I've heard a lot of teachers talk about the fact that it is hard to, hard to actually build relationships with people because they do project and idealise and expect mm. a lot from these teachers who are, you know, like you and I. Um, and, of course, they, they have a very strong spiritual practice, but it doesn't mean that they don't have their own foibles and, you know, difficulties and suffering and 
um, mm. sort of I always try and keep that in mind. Um, and I've done a bit of teaching myself in the insight tradition um, over the last few years. And I have noticed what that's like in, in not, not that I'm in any way close to any anyone like that. But what I mean is um, every now and then when you show up in that capacity as a meditation teacher um, or a Buddhist teacher, um, you can sense a kind of projection onto you and you feel a bit guilty mm. because you realize like I'm not perfect you know and I've got mm. um, all these hang-ups and difficulties and neuroses in my own mind um, and how much of that should I reveal and how much of that should I withhold um, and so it can be difficult I think being in that mm. position yeah. Mm. yeah it's a bit of a fine line between as a teacher sort of offering sort of insights and and even inspiration or or kind of aspirations maybe for people versus somehow the projection of celebrity and and um idolization a little bit because you you're certainly wanting to inspire people and at the same time stay very kind of um you know level with with them as well uh, the the other thing you alluded to there was was your own kids and and I I had wondered just to myself whether you know you you mentioned a little bit about how partly uh, you rebelled a bit with your mum you know she was more into the fashion and that sort of thing and she was a retail person herself and she loved perhaps shopping and so on and there was a part of you that almost rebelled there. But it sounds like there was another part of your upbringing which really was the way that your parents took you places I guess was it and and um mm-hmm. and and they the, there was a sort of a, a a little bit of of you know that 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 exposed you to um all sorts of ideas and cultures and places and and you know that bit was really kind of in line with with where you ended up you'd kind of like to um sort of offer that with your own kids perhaps one day as well yeah definitely I think you know my um I was raised by my mother and my grandmother, so two women, and um, uh, Mm. they were refugees actually from Egypt. And so uh, they, and and Egypt was largely cosmopolitan. um, And so they lived in amongst a lot of different cultures themselves. My grandmother spoke four languages, including Arabic, French, English, Italian, um, and migrated here um, to Adelaide with quite a bit of difficulty at that stage. Um, but I think they did have a sense of the broader world um, and there was a real um, a real thirst to connect with you know people outside of Australia um, and to I suppose you always feel as a migrant somewhat out of place so to gain a sense of belonging in the broader globe I suppose so um, yeah I'm really blessed for that reason and even though my mother was a shopper she was also tremendously loyal and um, loving and connected and so um, she had all these values that she brought to the table it's just that her interests were a little bit different to mine you know and she wasn't a serious reader or you know she wasn't interested in intellectual ideas so I didn't I didn't grow up in an intellectual family at all Um, yeah so way more practical ethnic down-to-earth kind of family yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but sort of worldly and a bit a bit sort of you know interested and curious about the world and 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 one's place in it. How, how old are your kids now? 
Um, well, one is in utero, so I'm pregnant with my second. Oh. Um, and I'm now referring. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And um, my my son is seven, so he's and mm. he ended up quite um, quite different to me. I didn't, you know, I decided I didn't want to raise him any particular religion, and and it's partly because I strongly believe the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, you know. So um, for me, this isn't about a particular religious position, but it's about values, and so. Um, and I also don't like to tell him what to think or how, even how to behave, really. I've just given him space to be himself. Um, and he, I always joke that he, like, he's part comedian, part investment banker. And so <laughs> quite different to me in a lot of ways and, uh -huh. like, a total delight to, to see that difference as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, of course, he watches us and he watches how we live our life, but I've been really reluctant to impose mindfulness on him, even though I teach that, and um, and even kind of a sense of morality, because I think he's coming to that through care and connection with his parents, and he's coming to that himself, which you know, mm. I think is intrinsic, and that that to me intuitively feels a bit better than extrinsic um, teaching around some of this stuff. Yes, my daughter, who's twenty one now, <clears throat> is doing nursing, and she. I think it was actually maybe last year in her first year of nursing, she came home one day and said, oh, they were talking today about compassion and it was really very interesting and, and blah, blah, blah. And she was telling and I was like, Freya, I've been talking about that for years. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but there's this, there's something very special and important, I think, in, for all of us to be able to, you know, kind of discover these things in a way for ourselves, a bit like you did in a way. You, you sort of, and you're kind of hoping for your son, for example, or, or your children to discover the things that really resonate with them, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, if he does become an investment banker, I've got nothing against investment bankers, he might become a, a compassionate one, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I was recently at the Compassionate Mind Foundation conference in in the UK, and and there was quite a lot there about compassion in leadership and compassion in organisations and compassion in politics, and you know it was sort of interesting to think about perhaps yeah, investment bankers or uh, big business CEOs or whatever, and how we can start to you know sort of infiltrate the boardrooms or something. But mm -hmm. uh, so that is interesting. So um, yeah, tell us a bit about the Nan Tien Institute. Is that the correct, correct pronunciation? Yeah, yep, Nan Tien Institute. You got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's connected to the Nan Tien Temple, which I mentioned earlier, mm. um, and it's connected via a bridge, actually. So on one side, you've got this really beautiful um, Chinese temple um, with all the dragons and the reds and the oranges, and um, it feels like being in China for a moment. And then you walk over the bridge and you come to the Nanjian Institute, which is a kind of modern um, concrete building, quite beautiful. It won some architecture prizes um, in the shape of a lotus. And, um, and it feels a bit like being in a spaceship when you're in there, actually. Um, and so this institute um, came about, I think, in 2011. And the idea was to offer Buddhist higher education because there was no such thing in Australia at the time. There's Naropa in the US and there's also University of the West. Um, and then there are various Buddhist universities in India um, and in Taiwan and in China. Um, and so uh, 
the um, the leader of, of um, this particular order of, of Buddhism, which is called Bhagwan Shan, was um, he was kind of a, a rags to riches story, and a lot of um, you know not that he ended up rich, but he ended up rich in knowledge, and a lot of this came through self education. So he had a real emphasis on um, educating people across the world, and he saw that as a pathway to one to um, liberate yourself um, from difficult conditions and two to be able to embody Buddhism more fully. So he started a range of institutes and universities around the world, um, and one such institute appeared in Wollongong. And originally, they were just kind of operating out of the temple with ten students. Um, and then eventually they decided to build some infrastructure and expand. And since then, it's grown steadily. And we now have a Buddhist studies program, um, a um, mental health program, a health and social wellbeing program. And next year, we're about to launch an applied mindfulness, a grad cert in applied mindfulness. And what kind of makes this place unique, I suppose, is that it's all accredited by, you probably know this acronym, by TEXA, which is our government accrediting body in higher education so means that we're operating under the same rules or more onerous rules than universities um, so yeah so a lot of people have gotten buddhist educations um, education in different ways like through you know going signing up for a free online course or going to a temple or sitting in a retreat and all of that is absolutely worthwhile but this institute brings it to the next level in terms of scholarship and scholarly study of these topics and so what would be your role there? What, what are your primary sort of focus focuses? Yeah, foci. Foci, I was <laughs> trying to think. I don't know. <laughs> Just said educations. So I think we're on the same page. It's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, my my primary focus really has been the health and social wellbeing program. Um, mm. And the, I'll also be looking after the applied mindfulness program, which is a bit of a baby for me. So another birthing another baby um and uh i've been wanting to introduce applied mindfulness as a grad cert for some time so mm. i'm really thrilled about that um and so i look after those programs and i teach into those programs so i teach a course called compassionate work which i mentioned in the in the talk at the symposium mm. um i teach applied mindfulness for professionals research methods um, and then I do a range of CPD activities throughout the year, mainly grounded in, in mindfulness and compassion. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we've got a whole suite of kind of experts and sessional teachers who um, uh, come and teach from their perspective. So we've got people who teach like mindful leadership, coaching and counselling, um, Buddhism and psychotherapy, these types of subjects and so um i have a lot to do with those those individuals who are all fantastic inspiring individuals um and we try and coordinate the whole the whole program yeah and and so where where does like the compassion at work for example or, or other programs like what, what's your take on compassion and how does how do you kind of um kind of think about that or present it or or you know kind of include it into into the training yeah, yeah, yes. Well, you know, I, perhaps I hadn't given it deep enough thought, um, you know, six years ago, and it wasn't until I started to write this course mm. that I opened up Pandora's box um, and I realised that this was a deeply multidisciplinary, complex area of, you know, both scientific and um, philosophical knowledge. 
And so um, in writing the course, I realized one, that I was under equipped um, to teach from the perspective of the hard sciences, particularly um, the neuroscience of, of compassion. So I've gotten a few experts in, and in fact, your colleague James appears as a guest lecturer on that course, mm. um, which is a treat to have him. Um, and then I also wanted to make sure it wasn't skewed too much to the hard sciences. So I then incorporated a lot of, um, you know, philosophical content and sociological content. And so really where I sit is more in the, the kind of sociology of compassion. Um, and right now I'm doing a study on the pedagogy of compassion, so compassion education. Um, and, you know, just talking purely from a non-academic perspective, from my personal perspective, um, I think I adopt the Zen position, which is simply that compassion is automatic, is, is as automatic as moving a pillow in the middle of the night. And so um, that comes from one of the um, one of the records, one of the Zen records. And I, I just love that metaphor because it's so yeah. simple and it reminds me how natural helping others is. And so the idea is that, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you shift your pillow because you're not quite comfortable. It's so deeply automatic. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, from a personal perspective, I try and just follow these automatic impulses in my day-to-day -day life. You know, how can I help? Sure, I'll do it. If someone's running across the road and it's unsafe, I'll grab them, you know. Someone needs food, I'll feed them. You know, it's that simple. And um, we don't need to make a big deal about it. So that's the non-academic me. The academic me <laughs> says, yes, we do need to make a big deal about this. Um, and I'm very interested in the way we conceive of compassion um, and who we think is worthy of compassion and who's not, um, how we conceive of suffering, how we construct suffering, uh, what types of suffering are seen as uh, really problematic and which aren't. I mean, you know, for example, mental suffering never used to get much um, attention. And now the, the psychological turn has meant it's gotten a lot more attention. So you can see that politically and socially, um, we think about suffering in different ways and construct it differently. So I think thinking about all of this with students has been such a treat because these are postgraduate students, you know, reflecting mm. on their own view of suffering and, and who is the deserving receiver of compassion and how do I construct them? And, you know, like we do a lot of work looking at humanitarian discourse, um, and we try and identify the difference between pity and compassion through those representations. Um, and we look at altruism. So there's just, there is, there is a lot there. And because I'm in this tradition of deconstruction through sociology, I love to pick it all apart. Um, mm. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't paralyze people doing that. Sometimes it does, you know, paralysis mm. by overanalysis, but um, other times it can be really eye-opening, I think. To, to consider the fact that we're not, I mean, personally, I don't believe that um, we should be building an identity based on compassion or the sense of being a good person. Um, I think we're, we're a mixture of all sorts of things, like we're, you know, we have the capacity for cruelty, for love, for good deeds, etc. And there's something quite mysterious and unique about humans, um, something pro-social, I suppose, that allows us to care for people when they're in distress yeah yes I really appreciate the sort of moving the pillow you know that that is a beautiful metaphor and there is a part of 
compassion that is, you know, quite uh, just so deeply a part of our humanity that that it's quite reflexive. Sometimes we we just sort of respond um, to need by trying to be helpful in a way, and and um, and yet then on the other hand, we have these tricky brains or whatever, and and so yes, there can be you know compassion is not boundless. Sometimes you know there, there can be certain appraisals around deservedness as you said or you know is the person worthy of compassion or of good character or is there suffering their own fault or all sorts of things that we might um kind of that might become sort of blocks um i really appreciate paul gilbert's work on fears blocks and resistances i think it's a, a really powerful idea because in some ways working with the fears, blocks and resistances is the work in a way, isn't it? Because then if we can move through some of that, then that more natural kind of unfolding of compassion um, sort of emerges from there. What, what... That's very optimistic, but I, I, I do agree, you know, on a personal level, I agree, yeah. Yeah. What, what made you say optimistic? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts or reactions there. I think it's, um, you know, it's partly because I, I said before that I taught in criminology and there's this kind of blank slate theory, which you might've heard of, um, which is that we're born with a, a, a blank slate. Um, I don't mm. believe that. And, you know, I no. think my son absolutely came out, how he came out, but with a temperament, right? But um, the idea, and, and it's not to be, kind of dismissed quickly is that we can cultivate certain qualities and not others and so the idea is that there's nothing kind of inherent within us that these are qualities that get developed through you know environment and society and um and it's a kind of um, iterative process that happens over the course of someone's someone's life and so um a lot of criminologists think like this they think about mm. they think that you know people who have come from difficult backgrounds um uh they behave in difficult and problematic ways and um there's kind of no hope like there's no sense of like well we can if we can just tap into their inherent compassion or their prosociality we can solve this and so i'm not saying i believe that but i absolutely think we should think about it um because in buddhism people are very quick to um claim that inherently we're good um, and I think that's an optimistic claim. I think I believe it, but I, you know, I always like to be a bit sceptical towards my own opinions and, um, and, and leave that kind of door open that perhaps, you know, we live in a society where we value good deeds and good actions. We've got a Judeo-Christian ethic by and large um, and the sanctity of life is really important to us, et cetera. But if we were born into a completely different society with opposing values, would we see much pro-sociality? That's the question that I often think about. Yeah. Mm. Yes, and it, it, it's it, there's sort of three bits in a way, isn't it? I mean, the first bit is we 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 are born with a brain that that really was designed over you know I guess millions of years to have a whole bunch of functions built in really that that were. I mean, if you ascribe to the evolutionary model, you know, that, that were built in to help us to survive, I guess, and survive long enough to reproduce and pass on those those kind of um, characteristics or something like that. And so the, the first tricky bit is that, yeah, we're, we're sort of born with, with that kind of brain that, that has 
actually a whole range of functions, including um, competition or even uh, cruelty, and but maybe also caring and compassion. But then we get born with our own specific little um, genetics and maybe strengths and weaknesses or temperament, as you said, and that can vary from person to person. And and then things start to happen, you know, and, and we get shaped by life experiences as well. So there's a whole sort of sequence of things that can um, uh, kind of lead to who we gradually become, whether that be more kind of interested in compassion or, or otherwise. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I see what you mean. And, and um, there's a really great series of studies out of the University of Coimbra in Portugal working with uh, youths in detention. Mm-hmm. Um, people who young young people who have um, sort of gotten in trouble with the law and and to the extent where they're now you know kind of in detention and they did some compassionate mind training type stuff with them and and found some really very uh, powerful changes actually in in those young people. So I think the optimism for me is is less about. Um, you know, kind of the the things that have perhaps already happened, and and sometimes more about what is possible. You know, um, from here. Yeah, of. I agree. I agree. Maybe this whole argument about whether something is inherent or constructed is irrelevant in a way. You know, I think that we can get bogged down in those discussions, particularly in Buddhist circles and mindfulness circles. Um, and I think what's important, as you say, are the conditions in in the present moment and going forward that may, mm. you know help affect someone's neuroplasticity and change mm. their life for the better so mm. yeah 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 well as marcella matosh at the symposium presented she she presented those epigenetic changes you know as a result of of which but i i won't be able to maybe you can summarize them but it's quite complicated stuff i'm still getting my head around the epigenetics of things but um but it did seem remarkable that even at that epigenetic level there are changes in in certain directions when people are able to experience some of the compassion compassionate mind stuff yeah what what would you what do you notice in your students about blocks then you know like do do, do you notice that there are certain common things or, or challenges maybe that um that that you face or that they face in in cultivating compassion mm, that's a really good question yeah, I mean, I think if I led with what the students told me, um, the main block is is self-compassion. And so they always mm. thought that the self was kind of out of the equation. And so that's why they're really touched by Neff's work on self-compassion, um, which to me is fantastic, but is um, is kind of old news. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, self-compassion is part of this, right? But for, for people who are coming to it, for the first time it means a lot to them and so um i appreciate that in your sphere you know you talk a lot about self-shame and self-criticism and i think that that is very true of my students experiences um and so the art i think is to move um move between self-compassion and, and compassion for others and not just stay in one spot and so um you know from a buddhist perspective the idea of the self is is not that concrete it's impermanent and so Mm. self-esteem has always been seen as you know something really important but not something that 
you can cling to for the rest of your life. It's changeable. Um, and so if that can hold these ideas lightly um, around self-compassion and self-esteem and consider you know, others in their life, I think that's really wonderful because there is a bit of a danger of kind of, not it's essentializing or it's um, getting stuck in one mode of thinking about compassion. So compassion becomes like self-care all of a sudden um, mm. and and which is fabulous, self-care is terrific, but there's no link to the outside world, if you want to call it that, or to others suffering. And so um, from my perspective, what concerns me often is that when you do live in a society where you're comfortable, not everyone is in Australian society, but a lot of, um, a lot of people are, you can selectively switch off from certain forms of suffering and you know take care of your own psychological health but that seems a little bit kind of like a missed opportunity again for connection and um meaning and feeling part of this broader humanity um and so yeah i guess i see the importance of both i'm certainly not on the side of arguing against self-compassion i think it's totally wonderful and it fills a, a huge gap um, and i think we need to make that leap across to kind of you know, personally, I believe that like self and other is a false distinction and that we, you know, that there's a lot of people in my life in my own head, right? So I really like these theories of intra-psychic relationships and so how I treat others affects my psychological health and, and vice versa. So I don't kind of see it as, um, you know, oh, this is my psychological health and you're out there. I see it as much more interconnected um, and so I would probably work with my students to problematize this notion of, of self-compassion and um, and think more about just compassion flowing from body to body mind to mind you know species to species um, yeah you mentioned much earlier uh, Joshua tree yeah. and I've been there too I went to a um, mindfulness-based relapse prevention uh, retreat, which was a um, long time ago with Alan Marlett and uh, Sarah Bowen uh, and their, their colleagues. But I also went and did uh, the MSC retreat with Kristen Neff and, and Chris Germer. And one of the things Chris Germer said, which really helped me, and I've mentioned this before, but um, <clears throat> is that, you know, in, in many ways, compassion is, uh, you know, kind of is towards living beings that you know that we offer our compassion to to all living beings and we're a living being too and so really self-compassion really is just meaning widening our circle of compassion yes. to also include ourselves kind of exactly. thing and that seems to fit with what you were saying that the to think of it as sort of two distinct or separate things you know it's it's sort of it's more just including ourselves really in in our own compassion Exactly. And I think we're all skewed in certain ways. You know, I think some of us are more, uh, like some of us are more other oriented. I find that in parenting, you know, I'm so fixated on my child that I often forget to look after my needs. Um, and so self-compassion is a great way to kind of redirect my attention. And then there's the, the other type of person too. Maybe I was that in my twenties, you know, where I was kind of narcissistic in a way. And so I really needed to be able to see others and move towards their suffering um, and so 
in a way it's a kind of corrective like where you place your attention and what what you focus mm. on depending on the state of your mind and your orientation and predispositions I suppose mm. yeah. yes it's, it's sort of ever unfolding and it's a little bit of a reflect review repeat sort of cycle of just sort of honing um this this compassionate motivation and so one of the things I, I sometimes like to ask people, and I don't know, but um, like, would you have, say, three tips? <laughs> um, like if if people are, are sort of thinking about some of the stuff we've been talking about and that you've been saying there, like what, what would be three suggestions or ideas or things to reflect on or tips uh, just to, for, for people making their way on, on their own compassionate journey does does anything come to mind there yeah that the i'm gonna have to condense what i've said um so i guess the first tip is um what i mentioned earlier about it being self-enriching and mm. so um it's pleasurable i mean it feels good to feed people right and so um in the jewish tradition for example you always leave a plate out and a seat out for a stranger who might come into your house and eat dinner with you um and so these acts where you know, we're incorporating people beyond ourselves or beyond our, um, our family and attachment figures um, is very enriching. And you, you gain all these experiences that you may not have gained and understandings and insights and opportunities. And so in that sense, I think um, uh, compassion is a really positive thing and an exciting thing that can bring you a lot of meaning. And so that's one the other tip is that it's um, it's not about being a good person, right? And so it's not about being nice. And I think that was mentioned at the conference. I think we can get really confused between being compassionate and being nice. Um, and um, I think, you know, often people are stuck in this people-pleasing mode for whatever reason. Um, and that can be quite self-serving and self-absorbed. Um, compassion sometimes calls for more fierceness and boundaries in our life. Um, and so that can be surprising in a way. You surprise yourself into realising, wow, I acted in a way that felt quite firm um, and quite assertive, um, but I did it with a good motivation and it feels good in the body to, to, to do that, you know, not, not out of aggression, but out of compassion. So allowing for scope, I suppose, in your definition of compassion to include something more fierce, protective, bounded. Number three, let's think of number three. Um, well, actually, um, it was interesting. I was at a, a meeting with um, Joseph Goldstein last week, I think it was, and it was a, a kind of Q&A session. And someone asked him about, they said, I'm a Buddhist teacher. I really want to help people. Um, how can I get more people into my courses? He was also a mindfulness teacher. And his response was super interesting. He was like, well, you don't actually know the implications of your work. So if you teach a 1,000 people, you don't know how well that's going to be translated or transmitted. But if you teach one person, you know, for all you know, that one person could go and teach 10,000 people. So it's not about the outcome. It's, um, and, it's, and it's not about, not even really about altruism in a way of doing good in a broad sense. But it's, it's simply about, he said, he loves the mantra, how can I help? And it's spontaneous and it's in the moment. And if someone doesn't want to hear you waxing lyrical about mindfulness or compassion, you shut the hell up, right? And so <laughs> it is responsive to your circumstances. 
and you don't go in with some kind of pre-ordained idea about what you're going to do for someone. So I think um, that's a little bit radical. And I, I love, there's also a book that I want to mention called The Five Invitations, which you might have read um, by Frank Ostasevsky, who is a Zen hospice worker. And he talks about the fact that when he was working with um, palliative patients, often he had to you know, ditch the Buddha and bring in Jesus, right? Because that's what made them feel comfortable. So that level of responsiveness and letting go of your own ideologies or philosophies or ways of, you know, it must be like this is a radical shift, I think, towards the other and towards attunement. So that's what I'd say probably on the... You just caught me off guard, so I'm just telling you what's coming to mind. <laughs> I love it. I mean, that's an incredible answer, to be honest. I really appreciate that. I did spring it on you, but um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, compassion is enriching. Um, it 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 does feel good. You get a lot back from being compassionate, you know, towards others and and oneself, I guess. Um, it it's different from niceness or people pleasing and in, in fact often it's very important for there to be good boundaries and sometimes fierceness is a part of it and and um but you know from a place of compassion and, and it's it's not really about the numbers it's not really about the outcomes it's it's just that that sort of really kind of almost simple motivation how can i help um uh, and just being spontaneous in the moment um so those are really three beautiful tips thank you very much i'll also put the book you mentioned into the little notes at the bottom of the the video um how can people find you or in, engage with your work or the nantian institute any suggestions there yeah yeah thank you um so you can find me on the website on the nantian institute website which i'll tell you um mm -hmm. and been doing a little bit of writing these days for the Guardian, so you might see me appear um, in the Guardian a little bit, and um, a few Buddhist publications as well. So just Google my name, and those hits should come up. Um, I have to update my bio and profile to include new publications. I haven't done that in a while, which would be smart. Um, so the the uh, the website is www.nantian.edu.au. And if you go to faculty and staff, you'll see um, my contact details and my bio. Okay. That's really great. And and I might have a look at The Guardian. Do, do you have sort of a profile on there or is it more just well, sort of random articles? At the moment, or... I'm just writing for an opinion section on spirituality. Um, okay. Yeah. And so I've written a piece on parenting and a piece on um What's the first one on oh, on um, uh, finding meaning? And then the next piece I'm going to write, I think, is going to be on self-compassion. So it's a bit of a regular spot writing about spiritual matters. Well, I hope it's going to be regular. That would be really lovely because there's something about translating academic knowledge into popular consciousness. Um, and it's amazing how people, you know, they don't know what you're doing half the time when you're an academic until you write something quite simple um, for popular consumption so that's been a treat and you know I love I love the fact that we're also able to do that as academics so, yeah oh that sounds like a really wonderful thing I, I'll, I'll check that out for sure and I'll put all the different links in the notes below on on the the video and in, and on the podcast 
Um, but Nadine, thank you very much for coming along and having a chat. I, I actually really yeah, learned a lot out of all of that. And I, it does sound like you're doing really some wonderful work. So um, thank you and congratulations on all of that. And thanks for having a chat on Compassion in a T-shirt. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you.